What is up? I'm Miguel Antonio, and you are listening to the Live and Create podcast. It's where I interview artists and entrepreneurs about what it means to live a great life and create great things. And before we get into today's episode, I want to invite you to check out my band, Run With It, at Run With It Band. That's at Run With It Band anywhere, TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat, anywhere you follow people at. You can also follow us at runwithitband.net. And now for today's podcast. Today's guest is Evan Maxson. Evan is a professional chaos coordinator. By day, he oversees operations and technology for a nonprofit small business lender. And in his spare time, he's an aspiring entrepreneur that loves to talk about the mistakes he's made along the way. In this episode, Evan shares a story of how the organization he's part of scaled up their business to serve their customers during the pandemic. We also dive deep into the power of working through iterations as opposed to pretending to have a crystal ball to read the future. Evan also highlights the role of entrepreneur and how thinking like an entrepreneur while, in a, while actually an employee at an organization can bring great impact and bring yourself great joy and purpose. And finally, he breaks down the importance of simply listening to your customers and working to solve their problems. It's a great episode. Enjoy. The Live and Create Podcast. (laughs) Well, dude, chaos coordinator, I think, is the thing that you should definitely have on your business card at all times because that's that's just a cool title uh, in general. But (laughs) where, where does that term come from for you? Yeah, so I was working uh, the the company I was working for before my current organization. Um, I was working in the digital services of a, a large Texas-based bank, and um, as I was exiting there to start my my position, my current organization, uh, my my manager gave me a notebook uh, as like a parting gift, and it said "Professional co- uh, Chaos Coordinator" on the cover nice. of it. And I'm like. I, I, I'm stealing that. I'm, I'm going to adopt it, embrace it and go with it. So that's awesome. Well, yeah. and, and no doubt you live that out, like being in the lending world, uh, financial services world and a nonprofit, which I think is very interesting in that world in and of itself at the same time COVID happened. And at the same time, like new brand new government programs with a fuck ton of money <laughs> come pouring out and no one knows what the hell is going on yet. Somehow that's the life you were living. Uh, could you, just for the listener, could you break down uh, what you were doing in the in that that lending service uh, during the last two years of chaos? Yeah. So uh, the organization that that I work for is called DreamSpring, based here in Albuquerque. Um, we uh, we make small business loans to people that uh, generally aren't yet bankable in most cases. Um, We've got a, a focus. We're, we're technically what's called a community development financial institution, okay. which is a designation the U.S. Treasury Department um, awards us. And uh, what it means is that we basically get um, uh, money and uh, some extra recognition by focusing on on demographics that have historically lacked access or not had as much access to capital to start and grow businesses. Um, you know, in, in we get our, a lot of our donations actually and support comes from banks. Um, they get a, what's called Community Reinvestment Act credit, which is from 1976. Oh, Basically, wow. okay. decades ago, uh, banks and even even our federal programs like uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, instituted some very discriminatory practices um, like okay. redlining and things like that. So 1976, right. the act of in 1976 kind of... Um, uh, made, really made all those things illegal and said, banks, you now need to demonstrate that you are actually investing in the communities that you operate in. Mm-hmm. You can't just try to extract uh, um, capital from it. And so by participating with us, uh, they get to use that as CRA credit, Community Reinvestment Act credit, which is important if they want to open up a new branch or expand into to new new communities. Um, and, but also as a nonprofit, then in this space where we get to take on a little extra risk that a bank might not necessarily get to. So there's, there's benefit to them to refer. Cause they're bringing a little backing to, to what you're doing now. And it yeah. sounds like best case scenario. And the goal is to, oh, go ahead. Sorry about oh, that. I was just going to say, um, best case scenario is that they, they refer uh, a client to us, client grows a business, becomes stable, and then it becomes an ideal client for the, the bank and, and 
and, you know, transitions back to that, that relationship. Um, so that's kind of like why we exist where we're at. Right. right? Um, but the, the pandemic and, and the paycheck protection program, it was, it was about two years ago yesterday, I think that we actually closed our offices and became a fully remote organization. Hmm. And um, obviously the, the uh, pandemic COVID um, stimulus packages that, that Congress passed that uh, created the SBA lending program, the PPP or the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, and as a, as a small business lender, that's like, that's right in our space. That's, that's, these are the, this is aimed at helping the clients, the people, the individuals, the businesses that, that we're here to serve. And so uh, without a doubt, we, we had to participate in that. Um, but the question What's became: cool is You guys were you guys are right in the heart of the demographic that it was really aimed at. Where you know we saw the 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 bad headlines of the PPP program of huge mm-hmm. corporations somehow siphoning a, a ton of money, but you guys were in this place. That's what I I I was so inspired when you broke it down during as we could kind of keep in touch during all that. <laughs> uh, you were you know obviously life is so insane, but. Uh, I was inspired by that fact that you guys were able to like deliver it directly for the people who really actually needed the help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when we looked at our stats, so before the pandemic, our average loan size was le- is less than $15,000 okay. um, during the paycheck protection program, because the, uh, the nature of, of how the calculation worked for how much you were then eligible for our average loan size ended up being um, around 30, $35,000. Um, and yeah, during that first round, you're right. The the banks, a lot of the average loan sizes were were in the six figures, um, and some some lenders were uh, making million dollar PPP loans. And and it's wow. that came down to the really the way that the um, compensation to the lender was was divvied out in that first round, and they changed it in subsequent rounds to to make it more enticing for for lenders to do smaller. PPP loans. Right. Um, and so, but from the get-go, we were always focused on on the, the small micro businesses, the, the people that we had served before the, the pandemic started. Um, but it was one of those where uh, normally when people apply for a loan, like we're trying to assess the, the credit worthiness and the risk that, you know, we still have to be cash flow positive at the end of the day. Um, this is was very much more of like, here's the documentation that they need. And if they check these boxes, they're good. Right. Like, and, and so <laughs> the, we have a proprietary lending platform, which is geared for traditional lending. And so we had to quickly find a way to streamline the process and come up with a new workflow that was, that catered specifically to uh, the paycheck protection program uh, requirements so that we didn't, you know, we didn't burden applicants with stuff that they didn't need to provide um, as part of the the program. And and that way we could get more loans through. Um, And we went from in in 2019, traditional lending, we did about 1500 loans for about $20 million as an organization. In 2020, most of which was the the paycheck protection program lending, we did about 2600 loans for about $70 million. Wow. And then last year we did over 26,000 loans for $220 million. So it's constantly just this constant iteration of, of uh, our, our technological approach, um, questioning things and, and finding partners that can, uh, that helped us with awareness and helped, you know, take care of some of the. Stuff. Oh, sorry. It froze up real quick. Good we kind of a, a whirlwind experience hold on one i lost the last like two sentences you said because it froze up on there sorry about that awesome it's, it's that Al, <laughs> albuquerque i'm gonna blame it on albuquerque uh internet down there yeah yeah the, the at&t <laughs> hotspot that i'm running off of because i think that's <laughs> even less stable yeah right. so what was the last thing you heard um the last part where you were talking about the as like basically the question and iterations that were mm-hmm. happening, which allowed you guys to significantly uh, make that huge jump, uh, especially the last year. Yeah, it, it was uh, just a bunch of iterations and, and you know, finding 
I liken it a lot to kind of the lean startup methodology, right? Like you're looking for what are what's what's the quickest way I can I can make a, a change or build something so that I can collect data and learn from it and then do it again. Um, and that that was really kind of that iterative approach that we went through. Uh, it, we also didn't hold on to the status quo, right? So we have our, our proprietary lending platform, but we set a part of that aside and pull, set up an account or set up an account with a no-code solution uh, that allowed us to rapidly build a, an application form at, to collect the data to then flow into the rest of the process. So, um, you know, we, we on, a, on some part of, of it, some level, we took stuff that we'd invested heavily in over the years and just set it on the shelf and said, we'll get back to you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing too, because that's, especially in an environment where there are so many unknowns like that, obviously the, the current systems at the moment, you know, the, the systems at the time are probably not going to work in that moment. And, and maybe in a sense, I wonder too, are you guys discovering things that are helping you now long-term, even as we go back to quote unquote, you know, life as normal. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Uh, you know, some of the, uh, obviously the negative headlines around the, that lending program or uh, what, whatever you want to call it. Um, there, there was rampant fraud. Uh, I, I don't want to say like at our organization, but just in general with that program. Um, so we, you know, we had our first efforts were, were manual detection, you know, asking people for certain documentation that we could verify their identity. Um, but we saw a lot of uh, other institutions that, that really tried to automate a lot of it, that in certain situations, um, people trying to commit fraud found ways through and, and were able to, um, you know, successfully get funds through the, through the program. We have taken some of those lessons that, that you know, those other organizations had learned and, and <laughs> implemented similar technology into our existing lending platform. So our, our existing loan application process has the, some of that identity verification functionality built into it, which has now allowed us to um, have a, a path through for people to go from being unknown to us mm -hmm to being known to us and having approved for a loan and close on that loan within an hour That's and, amazing. and have no, no manual intervention. Um, you know, obviously the box have to be checked, right? Like certain conditions need to be, be true, um, for, for them to qualify for that. But, uh, a lot of that, when we were starting to pull that together late last year, the cool thing was like we were able to use some of the, the functionality we built to just facilitate higher volumes of, of the paycheck protection program lending and mm -hmm. say and repurpose it for this other concept. That's and awesome. so, you know, the, the lessons learned, new technology that we put in there, but then also some of those um, Lego blocks, as I kind of like to think of them as um, and, and add them to the, the traditional lending experience and, and enhance that quite a bit. So, yeah, we we came out of it with a lot more knowledge than, <laughs> than we had going into it in terms of <laughs> how to build high efficient workflows that facilitates uh, high volume lending. Well, and it, it, you know, it's my hope that most of us came out of all that craziness and hopefully we learned some things, you know, some things that could, could lead us better uh, in this next the next iteration of what our lives are. Uh, when you said, the, I, I want to ask you a question on that. What's the, the one thing you, you you personally have learned or that you hope most people have learned that's interesting it's a good question um well i i would say the iteration piece honestly is one that i keep coming back to i i've just been describing it as be being obsessed with like trying new things it's like like okay i'm not just going to grind i'm a grinder i can like I can choose a thing that I'm going to do and just do it and do it and do it and do it. Like, you know, like, know you know, my whole <laughs> Iron Man journey, you know, you know me for a very long time. I've done a lot of things, uh, but, but sometimes, sometimes I'm, I wasn't stopping. Sometimes I wasn't mm -hmm. trying to assess. And now I don't know if it was a product of 
maybe it was a product of the COVID time, but like I've just been in this spot now where I'm just becoming more and more obsessed with, okay, let's try something different. Let's try something different here. Um, and I think it's come out of probably the physical training because there are certain things that I was doing to my body that was tearing it down where realizing mixing things up uh, physically is actually helping me grow stronger, um, better endurance, all that. Um, and then trying to apply it in the business world itself. Um, I think the other part for me too is just, is just that like, maybe just more mindset. Like I'm constantly thinking about what's happening in my mind. And I don't know if I got to, if COVID allowed me to slow down enough to finally do that. Uh, maybe part of me grinding was, you know, pushing down all the shit that, <laughs> that I needed mm -hmm. to deal with. But I was even talking to someone at the gym yesterday. Um, somehow we got on the subject and I was telling him, I said, I really feel like I'm, I'm constantly trying to reprogram my brain and like, and I'm starting to see like, oh, that's, that's a negative thought or that's a, that thought's going to lead me down like obsession, like into a dark place. And so like, let me, how do I gently, but that, I think that was the other part is gently um, turn it over. Uh, because before I was like, listen, motherfucker, you know, like it's kind of my <laughs> in, inward voice um, and realizing even that part is not helpful. And in, in the judgment, like self-judgment is not helpful, but maybe self-assessment is maybe what I'm leaning into. But honestly, it's that it's that mindset piece and trying to reprogram myself. And it, I wonder, too, if that came out of the the training that I did during COVID as well, um, the physical training, because there was it was such a mental game to be able to keep running and keep swimming and keep, you know, like for hours on end. Uh, mentally, I had to go somewhere and discover things about myself that I'd never, I never knew. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would say that came out of trying to discipline myself physically through the COVID, uh, through that COVID time. So I, I came out of it. And even now I just have such an intentionality of making space, making space to think and meditate and, and kind of, and just jotting down and like revisiting regularly, like, what are you trying to reprogram your brain to, uh, to ideally get the life and build the life that I want to see around me. So, so yeah, cool. I think that's, that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> cool. But yeah, when yeah, you was, said that, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I, I was just going to say that it's, I was, I was using that question to ponder, you know, ponder it myself. I think there's, there's two, um, lessons. One is humility. And the other is focus, right? Mm -hmm. The humility is that as, as people, we're terrible at predicting the future. Right? <laughs> in It'll be over in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Like I remember in January 2020, just seeing kind of the news and, and people starting to to maybe make a big deal of it. Um, I told my wife, I'm like, maybe we should just prepare for like, what if what if we had to spend 90 days at home? Uh, uh, you know, let's, let's make sure we've got supplies for that. Yep. And, you know, <laughs> in hindsight, like 90 days. Wow. That would have been a, a dream if that, if it was over in 90 days, like history tells right. us that it would have been two years, um, from prior pandemics, but that, that, you know, that we're, we're, we suck at predicting the future. And mm -hmm. so making plans and trying to, uh, set goals that are too far out, um, is, is, can be counterproductive because it locks us into commitments that, that we uh, might not actually need to, to fulfill at that point in time. Mm. Um, and the second is, is focus that uh, my neighbor works for Whataburger. So I, I live in San Antonio and home of Whataburger where their headquarters are. And, and my neighbor works there. I was chatting with him and they, when they rolled out uh, curbside pickup because um, they did not have that feature. Most restaurants did not right. have curbside pickup. Uh, he said that they went from concept to nationwide rollout in four days. Damn. Cause, Cause they knew they had that to, was, they had to, it was the only <laughs> thing that the organization had to do within that short period of time. So everybody, nothing else mattered, right? Like mm. now imagine if that was our life, we only focused on the one, the, the most important thing at a time and, and complete it. Right. And, and so four days, that's, that's a short experiment. If we do this in four days, roll it out, will right. we retain business, right? Like, can we keep our sales figures up? 
Um, and, and so clearly it's a winner. It's not just a winner for Whataburger. It's a winner for all these restaurants that, that ended up doing something similar. But, That's such a know. huge lesson because a big corporation like that, it would have been months and months, maybe if not mm-hmm. years, they would have had test groups. They would have done all sorts of crazy shit that we think we need to do. But they're like, no, we got to survive. We got to do this. I love that right. story. <laughs> yeah. And if you could mobilize in a whole organization. So think about it. Nobody had any other projects going on. Nobody had any other commitments. It was solely, let's solve this problem right now. Because hmm. this is the most valuable thing to, to the organization and to our customers. Let's, let's get it done. God, that's huge. So I, I question, like, why, why, why don't we always operate that way? Right. <laughs> why do we allow ourselves to say, oh, yeah, we can do this and we can do this and we'll run these things in parallel and we'll have, you know, multiple balls being juggled at the same time and, and in the long run, I think that show that's proven to be less, uh, less productive, less efficient. Right. So that, that, that's one of those lessons, like focus is so powerful and, and I, it's so easy. We let ourselves get distracted so much. Mm. And that speaks to timing as well. Like the power of timing, because obviously that the timing drove that for them. Like that was the only way to survive and now has started a whole new thing where most people just want to go pick their stuff up. I was playing last night at a bar and realized there was people coming to the bar, getting a drink, waiting for their takeout food. And like, they just kept coming out with bags and there there's Mm. a ton of empty tables, but people just decided, I just want to take my stuff home. But I, I was listening to an interview with the the YouTube guy, uh, Mr. Beast. Are you familiar with him? He's like uh, maybe. a huge YouTube star, gives away millions, millions of dollars all the time. Yeah. Okay. I only know the boys love him to death. And uh, he was talking about uh, for them, because they have huge operations, like 100 employees and like four warehouses do all sorts of crazy things. But they were talking about the Squid Games. They, they recreated everything of the Squid oh, Game yeah. and did like a real competition with it where of course no one died but um he said like they had to turn it over like there was no mm-hmm. there was no like let's figure it all out like it's like no it has to happen now because in three months no one's going to care like no one at all and yeah. it was inspiring to hear someone get like a four million dollar operation um with like hundreds of people involved uh off the ground and turned it over at a high quality high level you know and yeah, it was, it was huge. When you talk about the the focus of it um, and the humility, I I heard you talking about also the the, the iterations, which I think yeah. kind of plays in maybe both of those things for you. And when you're talking about in your company, I wondered how I I'm guessing you were probably the spearhead of a lot of that that iteration, at least just because our conversations tend to center around that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was definitely involved in, in a lot of it, and especially the solutioning. Um, it, we, when when that was, you know, when the shit was hitting the fan, uh, as a as an organization, we had a key group come together, like you know, from our CEO and the senior leadership level, and and a few others. And and since I was um, overseeing our, our technology aspect of of the, especially the proprietary lending platform, uh, we were meeting on a daily basis. Uh, for you know a couple hours every morning to assess what's going on you know what what's what's the latest because things were changing day to day sometimes hour to hour uh, with either legislation or just as people were trying to figure out initially how do we survive in this uh, environment and then um, not only after that how do we survive but then how can we how can we be okay how can we then thrive um, and so, you know, a lot of that was, all right, here's the problem we've identified. We use, uh, I had been exposed to a, a book called the goal in college. Um, it's, it was in the ops operational management course that I had to take in my undergrad. And then, cause I went to the same school for my MBA, had the same professor. He made us read it again. <laughs> um, and it, it, you know, it, the lessons of that didn't really stick with me until I was in the midst of this. And I, some of the things started coming back to me. I'm like, oh, now it makes sense. Uh, but it, it lays out this theory called the theory of constraints. And it talks mm-hmm. about, it, it uses, it's a parable, right? It, it, it tells the story of a fictional guy trying to save a, a factory that he's the, the manager of and it's, it's failing. And so kind of his lesson and he's a dad of a boy scout troop and like an epiphany he had when he went on a hike with the troop and stuff like that but the the underlying 
theory is that everything's a system. Everything is like a manufacturing process, right? So for for lending, we have to generate uh, interest in our our products, our, our loans. We have to um, get people to fill out a loan application. We have to do a credit assessment or underwriting. We have to then close on the loan. We have to perfect the loan. If there's any collateral, we have to book it to our system. We have to send the person the money. We have to then collect money from it, right? Like, and, and then there's we have to have enough money to lend. We have, <laughs> so there's all of these different factors that come into play in the process of manufacturing a loan. Uh, similarly, like with I'm you're the songwriter, but as we've talked, I've kind of gleaned that there's a a process to manufacture a song, right? Like. And so there's this these steps that you go through, and when you're trying to do more, especially in the like the lending concept, every stage can be can be your greatest constraint. So right. at some the, point the you bottleneck. can only the bottleneck, right? Like yeah. you can only get so much through a given stage, and and the goal is to identify, be able to monitor that, identify where in the process is your constraint. And then focus all of your efforts on expanding or or exploiting it is what they call it in the um, in the theory of constraint world, so that you are um, you know it no longer is your greatest constraint, and then something else will be, and then you turn your attention to that. And so that thought process we we adopted in this group as we are monitoring and looking at like how are we going to survive, how are we going to. Um, continue lending you know what's that going to look like in this space and where are we constrained and and at times it was do we have enough lending capital to make more of these paycheck protection program loans so that became the sole focus of this leadership group is let's go solve for that let's go you know figure out how we we get that capital other times was how can we actually process the applications we get right like (laughs) And, and so that allowed us going back to the focus part of it, right? To really be very clear about what our focus should be as an organization. Yeah. And, and, and be okay with ignoring everything else because that was not urgent and important. What was right. urgent and important was making this better, this part of, of our process better. Um, and so, you know, within that, then there's kind of that, that iterative approach of, uh, you know, your science experiments. I have this <laughs> hypothesis that if we make this change, this will be the response. And here's the least amount of effort we need to put into it to actually make it, you know, build whatever right. so that we can see if we get the response we expect. And then what's our next observation that we need to then try to test and, and do that kind of iterative um, uh, approach to, to, um, minimizing the impact of a given constraint or exploiting it in the terms of, of uh, theory. So, no, and I, I love that. And I, I remember you mentioned that. So for, for the listener, Evan and I, we, whenever you get back to town, <laughs> uh, we, we typically go find like a wine bar or something. Our wives make fun of us because we're going on like a wine date or something, but we both uh-huh. like wine, damn it. So why not drink it? <laughs> um, <laughs> and the, Basically, this is a lot of the conversations uh, we often have, which I'm always inspired by. I remember you mentioning the goal, and I, I'm going to go get that book right right after this podcast and and dive into that. I, and you know, when I think about scaling up, right? You know, for you guys, you scaled significantly over what two and a half, three years, um, and then as a band, that's what we're trying to do as well. And we learned real quick when we got on the road. It was it was like just our first little regional tours. We're like, oh damn! Here's all the constraints. Here's all here's all the bottlenecks of our systems of like how we're taking mm-hmm. care of ourselves, how we load the the van, how we you know all all these details and how important systems are in in tweaking them. So I I love uh, I love thinking through those things and and even right now starting to think through like our own systems. I've been, I've been focused a lot on like the financial side of it. Uh, Cause I've always been really terrible. I, I basically just concluded that I'm terrible at keeping track of things. So then I just don't. And then every December um, I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, I need to get all my stuff together. And um, Where are my receipts? I just, yeah. <laughs> and I always hate past Miguel, you know, 
towards the end of the year. So I decided I'm going to show love towards future Miguel and start taking better, <laughs> taking better care of that and build like, but finding the most, because I think the other thing is, is we can complicate systems too, which it's like, sometimes I feel like, and you've probably seen it working in the corporate world to solve one problem. We put in something in place that actually causes even more work or causes like more constraints and people don't understand now they're managing like five constraints as opposed to like simplifying their lives. And so that's what I'm always wrestling through too. It's like, what is the, um, we, we talk about like, like the mo the MVP, the most viable product mm -hmm. uh, or minimum viable product, sorry. Um, but you know, like even what's the minimum viable solution because I can, I'm obsessive. So I can start to like overcomplicate shit, but it's like, for, I'm I'm just talking and riffing on it, but for example, for me, it was just like you know what, QuickBooks is on my phone. I I use a health tracking app every single day. I literally log everything I eat, and it's really simple for me. It takes like two minutes, and I'm like, what if I just had the same approach with the mm -hmm. band's finances? And then I then I'll be I'm loving future Miguel. <laughs> so yeah. I I'm curious for you have you how often do you see people like trying to solve their problems but they end up creating even more complications for themselves oh all the time all the time and, and sometimes also when things get implemented um it's harder to stop doing them right the status quo is, is a bitch um, yes <laughs> this it, is you know, how we it, did it <laughs> yeah I, and i was uh, a good friend of mine is what's known as an agile coach, right? Like there's in software development, there's waterfall where you plan everything up, do all this upfront design and work, and then you hand it off to various people. It's kind of like manufacturing. It's your manufacturing line for software. Um, and then there's this other concept that really took hold about 20 years ago, or at least got documented in, in what's known as the agile manifesto. And it's like 12 lines, uh, but it was software developers coming together and going, what have we learned? What do we what are the enjoyable aspects of, of what we do? And um, so he's an agile coach helping corporations adopt an agile mindset in some of these agile best practices in, in the agility, business agility or software agility. And he used to work for one of his, his employers used to be a large um, financial institution um, that is like primarily digital nationwide, and, uh, and he was working with his team and he's looking at their processes, their workflow. And he's like, why do we do this one step? Because that, that looks really inefficient. And they're like, well, the auditors tell us we have to. And he's like, <laughs> has anybody asked the auditors why? Like, I, like, can we get clarity on why this is a requirement? And they're like, well, no. So then they go to the auditors and they're like, hey, auditors, why do you make us do this thing? And the auditor goes, because you wrote it down in this process manual that you would do it. <laughs> <laughs> he's like so we just got to change the process manual and we don't have to do it anymore and they're like yeah we're the auditors we just our job is to make sure you do what you say you're going to do if you want to do something else just tell us you're going to do something else and and we can do damn, it damn that's the, amazing they are right, literally the committed is, to it and <laughs> yeah the lesson is that, that they implemented something at some point seemed to be rational or, or met some requirement right right but then time went along and nobody stopped to say is this actually beneficial anymore does is this relevant does this add value like why do we keep doing this but you know it was well we we have to keep doing it because that's how we've done it and, right. and that can be a very dangerous uh space to play in. and that's kind of what i see a lot too is nobody stops to ask why why do we keep doing it this way and, and even should we keep doing this um Right. I love that their manifesto is 12 lines as well. Cause I yeah. mean, imagine <laughs> if their manifesto was like 300 pages for the agile system. Uh, I mean, I, I'd start questioning mm -hmm. that, but <laughs> and when I think about, um, life change, right. And when I think about business as well, the, another thing that keeps popping up to me and I keep wrestling with and keep trying to figure out like how to implement it is this idea that, uh, well, the idea of resistance, right. Uh, Stephen Pressfield, you're familiar with the the War of Art. We've talked about that. 
We've talked about it. Yeah. So, uh, so what's hilarious is, uh, Josh Gleave, my, produ- my producer, I've shared a lot about him and I've referenced him the most on this podcast. I literally have. And then the book that I've referenced the most is the war of art by Stephen Pressfield. He, his podcast was last week and I just discovered that he hates that book. And so I thought it was hilarious that the most referenced person hates my most referenced book, but yeah, I'm going to have to go sit with that. But, (laughs) but, but this idea, so this idea of resistance, it's like everything, whenever we try to make a change, it tends to, we tend to get met with some kind of internal or external resistance. And the realization for me, it's not groundbreaking, but it's just the idea that everything we have, all the results we have personally or in our business right now, all the systems are built to get that result, plain and simple. So as long as you want to do the status quo, as long as you want to keep everything the same, it's good. But the moment you try to break out of it, it's going to highlight where your systems need to change, where your mindset needs to change, where your inputs, outputs, where your relationships need to change. And those things get to be really, really hard, you know? And, but, but again, it's just like the only way, like the only way you can get different results is to change something in that system or to change like somewhere in there. And even with the agile, I love that where he's like, did anyone ask? And then they find out it was just this dumb thing that someone put in a binder. And I, I literally make binders for my bands. I've, I've made binders and spent hours and, and realized like, okay, that's cute, Miguel, that you spent hours doing that, but you threw most of it out at like, uh, yeah, like spreadsheets and plans and five anyways. Because it feels productive. Like that, that is activity right. that feels productive in the moment, but in hindsight, complete waste of time. Yeah. Um, kind of pivoting off of that, like the, um, kind of the status quo. I, I also think what, what was coming to my mind too, and this is conversations that we've sometimes touched on at at the nonprofit I work at is, you know, nonprofits exist to solve a problem. How will we know that when the day comes that we don't need, we can shut down? <laughs> like, and, and will we be okay with that? You know, because organizations like processes, once they get established, like one of their, underlying drivers is to keep existing to to stay the way that they are right and so even for-profit organizations right nonprofits attack status at the end of the day um but organizations like they're one of their primary goals is to keep keep being keep keep Mm. continuing to be a going concern even if the problem that they were initially created to solve is no longer a problem see and that's that's rough right there. Cause if you want to, if you're there to solve homelessness, but yeah, you exist, like you get that your CEO gets paid, you know, a hundred grand a year. Like, what if you're too, what if you're too good and you solve homelessness? Right. Do you, how many people are now comfortable? Like you're actually incented to not solve the problem. And that's interesting. Well, that's, I hear a, a mantra in, in different like podcasts, different entrepreneurs where they say you should be working to put yourself out of business mm-hmm. so that you can continue to grow uh, beyond Definitely. that. And it's I like, totally so, agree with that. So then you solve homelessness, right? Um, which would be amazing, right? Then you pivot to something else, maybe. Find another problem worth solving. Like, obviously you're good at shit if you solve homelessness. So maybe you could go apply that somewhere else instead of uh, perpetuating homelessness. Yeah, that's interesting. The very, the very success of your organization would literally destroy your organization in that regard. Yeah. And, and I think, I think the, the admirable thing is to be, to, to look forward to that day, right? Like if, if you really are about solving a problem for a group of people, which is the same thing that for-profit organizations should be doing too, solving problems for their customers or their, their, you know, their customers, right? Like you should be excited about the day that that that's no longer a problem because you, you did it too well. Uh, And now, (laughs) now move on to the next problem to solve. Right. And and whether that's a new organization or a new product line or or whatever, but um, you, you should be excited about the prospect that you could, you could do it that well, in my opinion. Well, and if this podcast were a song, I think the title would have to be Iteration, um, because even that, it's like if your business is built off of one model and you grinded it for 20 years, and now you suddenly have to make a, another step or a pivot, you have no framework to do that. 
you have no will, you have no mindset, you have no experience just to know what it's like to fail a few times and, you know, and to f figure out how much you can afford to fail. Right. Um, because mm -hmm. like, uh, Jim Collins, whom we, ta I, I reference him all the time as well, but they talk about, you know, firing bullets and then, then you fire the big cannonball cause you don't want to waste all your yeah. gunpowder. And he's, he's like for a big company, you know, $5 million can be a bullet. But, you know, for a small company, it might be 5,000. It's just you got to figure out what you can risk to start uh, for him. He, honestly, he was talking about iteration, not in those terms, but the iteration as well. Yeah, that's yeah. I've been in the, in the music world, probably, you know, entrepreneur world as well. There's there's always that concept of like when we get there, when we make it, when we do this thing. And it's funny, I really in my journal recently wrote like there are there is no there it's all just next steps it's all just iterations and it's interesting that especially the life you've been living like you've been living it out so <laughs> incredibly much uh and, and so powerfully and so well you know it's so interesting for me too is you know our we've been friends has it been a decade now a minute it's been a, it's been a while i can't remember now getting close to, to double digits if not yeah already there and i think you have you've always had like, for the most time I've known you, you've always had like a position somewhere in a company, but you always live in that company as an entrepreneur. It's like you, you have this entrepreneurial mindset, even though you're not necessarily spearheading your business, like the business itself. I know you're also working on some other things, which I want to touch base on as well, but I'm curious for you, uh, you know, not necessarily leading your own business. Where does that entrepreneurship in that that focus for you come from? Because it's obviously there and it obviously leads. Yeah, to... I think the term I've heard is entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, um, I like yeah, it. Yeah, entrepreneurs with inside organizations, right? Um, I also the heretic uh, <laughs> can be the kind of the, the role that I play from time to time too, you know, nice. the, the contrarian <laughs> inside the organization. Like, why, why are we doing it this way? Uh, I, think, I don't think we're... <laughs> I think we're either doing too much or we could do this a, a different way. Um, You're the guy talking to the auditors. Hey, why the hell are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the one that, that asks the question and the CEO is like, who are you again? <laughs> like, am I fired? Um, I, it's, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I can't necessarily tell you why I have these uh, this inclination. But I do know that if I try to, if I'm ever someplace and I, I'm not able to express it, I'm not able to, to maybe speak freely. Um, then that's when, that, that's when I get, um, frustrated and it's time for me to leave. Right. Like I, I can't, I can't contain that. I can't, uh, suppress it, but it, I, you know, I, I think, I think it just comes from this desire to, and and the excitement I get from from thinking like looking at pro, uh, reading books like the Lean Startup and and the precursor to that the Four Steps to the Epiphany uh, that really spell out like this this methodical way of, of identifying problems that are worth solving, understanding really deeply understanding the nature of the problem, exploring for different solutions. And doing it in a way that is is rapid, is efficient, uh, minimizes the use of resources, and and actually gets to to a solution that that is viable, that people want, right? That they're they're willing to to pay for and exchange some of their resources for because they, they see value in it. Um, and that to me is is far more intriguing and and satisfying than uh, you know the what I like to refer to is the uh, baseball in Iowa approach. Like if you if you build a baseball field, they will all of a sudden show up. All these dead right. baseball players and, and fans <laughs> and stuff like that. Like you know, that's a great business a plan. Yeah, yeah. You guys it, are it loaning that shit out all the time. I bet. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So you know, when I, I but I the tendency too is that people generally it, that feel that if I plan better now, I'll get the result that I want later. And right. kind of going back to that humility concept is that's, that's a, not a supported position to have. 
because the information we have now is not as good as the information we'll have in a week, in a month, in three months, in a year. So trying to plan better now so that we get the result that we want then is a risky endeavor. And, yeah. and we should be looking at how do we minimize risk? So, you know, you're talking about when you think about the the there, when we get there, right? Like, yeah, let's be very clear about what that vision is of what that North star, the, the hmm. big thing. And then only focus on what step do I need to take today to move right. in that direction? Any step after today, I don't care about. I'll figure that out when I need to take that step, you know, yeah. or, and, and when we start sequencing these together over a period of time, the direction we make, the trajectory we take towards that, that goal ends up being a lot more stable and, a, you know, a lot better. It's not a, a linear, but um, oh, yeah. the progress you make is a lot better than if you try to plan everything up front and then uh, are a lot more reluctant to, to change or pivot or, you know, make alterations to your plans because you've invested in these plans and, and, right. you know, I just need to execute on it better. It's like, well, that's, well, no, <laughs> the world changed on you. There was a pandemic. <laughs> well, the number one thing I would say in, in my world is when an artist is like, I have a full length album that I, as an artist wrote from start to finish, and I want to put it out into the world as an album. And the reality is the painful, because I'm the album guy, I listen to albums straight through nonstop, but I'm, I'm not the norm. The not reality anymore. is it's, it's a singles world again, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's how this world operates. But I see it time and time again, where it's like, if you, it, it's interesting, I had to have someone have a conversation with me and they kind of broke down my walls and helped me see like, okay, this is the better strategy. When I'm Ed Sheeran, I can put out a, you know, a two, a two album thing. Cause then people care. And, <laughs> mm -hmm. but when watching an artist's face, even to this day, when you tell them, maybe you should release those as singles and not do a full album. And maybe you should leverage it this way. It's like every gear in their brain stops and like the little artist inside of them starts to cry and <laughs> and grieve but but it is that thing of like this is how the world worked at one point and this you know yeah. probably since they were 15 or whatever they imagine living this kind of thing and releasing this kind of thing but the reality is is the world doesn't want it that way anymore yeah because when we were 15 uh melancholy in the infinite sadness oh two yes disc, uh, set, you know album was released and that was something you were intended to listen to from start to finish in order and it starts with oh, yeah. the instrumental piano and ends that way right like it, it and the secret track thing. and all that you know mm, like oh yeah, damn, yeah you read all the lyrics I love you and smell the liner notes but, <laughs> but you know we've talked about this too in the past uh with the concept of, of songwriting and and uh, what a lot of the product that is in that creative space right like I'm fascinated by, and I've mentioned this to you over a couple glasses of wine previously, you know, the, this idea that one of the downfalls, pitfalls from, from the traditional process, as I understand it, is a lengthy feedback loop. You've got to write the song and, yes. and kind of get it to a place where then you can actually release it to, to your customer, your audience, your fans, right? And then, and then what? It either worked or it didn't. Right. And I'm, you I'm just put a lot of time it. and resources into yeah. <laughs> how can, how can we insert feedback earlier into that process and engage with the fans who are effectively your customers so that, you know, the, the creative product that gets released has their input in it, whether they're it's conscious or subconscious, right? Like you're, you're kind of like, what if I, how can I do some part of this process? see how people respond to it and iterate on top right. of that with eventually a song or an LP or an EP or two disc set or, you know, whatever <laughs> that, that, one day, man, that one resonates day. with them. Right. Because that's, I mean, sure. You can go write, create art for yourself and put it in your own house. But I don't know how many artists that, especially that are trying to make a living at, at from their art, <laughs> don't want their art to also resonate with somebody else. Right. When so, there's this so like, how do we, 
Yeah, it's like this yeah. these two places you can come from, like the super, you know, melancholy, you know, artist, this is for me, my mm -hmm. heart, my whatever, or the complete pandering, like uh have you seen the Bo Burnham clip? Yeah. Where the country <laughs> song that he wrote is hilarious. If you're listening, <laughs> like pause this, go check out Bo Burnham pandering and then come back and finish the podcast because it's hilarious. But it's uh, Josh Gleave, uh, I reference him again. One of the sessions we brought him in to teach other songwriters. And that's what he was saying. It was like, the best place you can be is, is find a merging of the two things. You know, like, where can you be authentically you, yet at the same time, put it, put it together in a way that's going to connect with your audience and for them to basically invite them into your story, you know? And yeah, it's, that's such a hard, that's such a hard line in the art because people get sometimes too emotional. I think it happens in business too, though. When, when you get yeah, the totally. your CEO, they've dumped all their cash into it. They, you know, everything's riding on it and they're like, oh shit. I've been in an organization and witnessed that firsthand, right? Like, right. I, I remember this idea. <laughs> it, it worked for my, it worked for my mom. So let's go play, <laughs> you know, life saving into it. And it, yep. Yeah. You know, it's a, that's, yeah, it, it, I, I think from the art world, I don't know. Maybe the definition of pandering is you're doing something solely for the money. Yes, and and well, the, that's the, what that's what he was referencing, where it's just solely to yeah. either be cool or to just do yeah. it for the money or whatever. But if you're an artist that wants your art to resonate with people, like inserting that feedback early in the process is not pandering, in, in my opinion, it, it's absolutely how can I make sure that that the art that I'm creating that I'm putting into this world mm -hmm. to make it more beautiful to, to, you know, resonate with people achieves that goal. And, mm -hmm. and only I can be the one to do it this way, but it, it um, but you, you can't do it in a vacuum. You, you right. have to do it with, with, with the, the input from, from the people that you're trying to do it for. When I can't remember who it was, another songwriter, but I cannot place the name at the moment, but I remember them saying, it's almost like the idea of, you know, when you were single and if you were trying to date someone who spoke a, a different language and he's mm -hmm. like, you may actually love that person. You may think they're beautiful and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, but if they speak French and you speak English, you could tell them all day your true real feelings and it will never connect. He's like, so you're going to have to learn how to speak French to tell them <laughs> that you love them. And, and, it, and I, I thought that was a beautiful way to say it of, of like, you know, I want to communicate these things. These are very real to me, but I have to understand the language. And it's even, I see so many artists bitching about TikTok and I got to make stupid TikToks and all this stuff. But it's just like, you know what? One, you don't have to make stupid TikToks. You don't have to do the dances and everything. So <laughs> hear me artists. <laughs> but then two like that's the language that's the new french and so it's like if you want to communicate your music to a certain demographic like that's where they're at you know there there's some people who aren't on any other platforms other than TikTok. you know and yeah it's like you have to learn how to how to speak that language so which requires you to understand your audience right yes which means that you've got to actually go listen to them you've, mm -hmm. you've got to go engage and immerse yourself in their world and, and not because entrepreneurial trap number two is now that I've got this idea, I'm going to go sell it to people. I'm right. going to go present it and get feedback. And it's like, no, what you did was a sales pitch and you're, and yeah, they told you that they liked you because, or like it because they like you right. and they don't want to hurt your feelings uh, as opposed to, yeah, like actually going and being like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not even mentioning my idea yet. I just, mm. here's the problem tell me about it. You know, that's, that's I, right now. So my, my uh, youngest daughter has celiac disease, um, mm -hmm. which is the disease that kicked off the whole gluten-free craze. Right. Like, but so there are people that live a gluten-free life, but don't have celiac disease. And so their, their need to avoid like contamination and stuff like that. Food prep is not as strict as somebody with this, this condition that she's got. I mean, it right. sounds like 20 parts per million of, of gluten and gluten is a, a very sticky, persistent sub, substance. So like once it gets on a pan, <clears throat> like a nonstick pan, it's there forever. You can't use it to make food for somebody that's got celiac disease. Wow. 
And so, you know, when we travel, like that's kind of the area that I've started to identify for potential opportunity for myself is that traveling for her with her is difficult to find food that is safe for her to eat. Um, And so it's not that I have an idea yet, but it's, it's, I want to talk to more people with celiac and say, how do you travel? What pain point, how you solve this already for yourself? Do you just travel less you know, have you found products or, or some solution that allows you to eat safely and, and still do this? I, you know, right. that's an area of, 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 you know, a problem space that I'm really trying to start diving into because I've got a personal connection to it. It's a very defined market, right? There's a, a very defined community of people with this disease that have this problem. Um, and that, you know, would potentially for the right solution, make it a viable viable company if whatever that solution ends up being right um and you're doing actual ad spend around your surveys right is that correct so yeah i started i did a little bit of that i got a few surveys um but now it is really starting to pivot towards one-on-one qualitative uh conversations um you know not not quantitative as much i mean like the surveys was just like hey how, how can i minimally spend some money to get some data to see if there's patterns and and then that can kind of guide some of the um qualitative interviews you know help those conversations be a little bit more more focused um right with with the target market that's awesome man back to the iterations like yeah learn it's all all about feedback (laughs) (laughs) well it's funny our last conversation we had uh, about this concept of shortening the distance of of uh like feedback the feedback loop Mm -hmm. uh the idea of our Patreon. So we're going to be launching a Patreon in the next few months. And we've been wrestling through like, what's, what's the value we're bringing to people that's different than like our online. Cause I don't, I don't really want a paywall for most of our content. Like I just don't, I I want to connect with as many people and tell the story of run with it. Um, But again, wrestling, what's the value we can bring. And that was one of the pieces that we're talking through right now. What does it look like to invite them into the writing process? And, um, and to where, find a way to where we can stream and get immediate feedback while we're in the studio, uh, working on the 2023 releases that we're going to be putting out. Cause we're, we're kind of all, everything's kind of boxed and ready to go for 2022, but we're, we're looking towards 2023. What does that look like? And, and I think, I, I loved it. One, it feels uncomfortable to me. So I think that's probably going to be good. Uh, it helped me grow. And, but, but it really is that conversation that, that pushed me uh, to that. But, and two, I think it may actually potentially grow our community in a lot more meaningful way. Um, Cause it's been cool to see and get feedback from fans, you know, even people messaging us, Oh, I can't wait for this song to come out. Cause we're, you know, seeping out clips, you know, for the 2022 stuff. But I imagine those, those comments, one, will grow, and two, be more impacting or impactful uh, for the stuff if they actually were part of the process itself and probably yeah. be better songs because even like you said, it's like I may think something's really cool, but people, you know, all the fans are like, mm, that's weird, man. Like, I don't that, It was cool. We're not ready for that yet, Miguel. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> you're not ready for my artistry. <laughs> but in reality, I was just speaking English and they were speaking French, so... <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know for the for the listener evan and i evan's one of my go-to people uh i i call you uh like hey going through this uh whether it be personal a lot of business um and you've always just had so much great insight i love again your entrepreneurial mind i'm excited to see where your research in the celiac world goes because just hearing you you said something in there where you know was their solution simply just to not to travel less and that actually like that emotionally connected with me and hurt like inside because for us you know vacations and trips and even if it's just a little weekend getaway are powerful moments as a family because we're you know you're in a different state right now that's how i live a lot of times like it's like so when we can have focused moments as a family which is typically when we get the hell out of here Yeah, it, it's it's so powerful. And it's the stuff that builds, I think, long term families and deep relationships. And then to hear hear that someone may have that's the solution. It's well, we can't just do trips like if you can find a solution to that. 
for people, obviously for yourself, but then for others to where like you're literally giving them back like more memories. You're literally giving them back like deeper relationships. And damn, how cool wow. is that? You know? I'm going to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on the, the why statement, you know, Simon Sinek start with why kind of right. concept for, for that effort. And I'd not fully considered that aspect to, to, you know, the relational aspect and, and being able to build that, um, you know, I was a little bit more surface level. So, wow. It, you know, you talk about like reaching out to me. I love our chats. I love like, hearing what you're doing in the, that creative space, how you're, you're approaching it and trying to connect dots to, you know, the, the world I live in and some of the philosophies and, and frameworks that, that uh, I see valuable in, in the business space, right. Being and seeing and just running with how, how can that, how can that apply to, to this space that feels a lot less um, predictable. <laughs> right. Well, thank you, man. Yeah, I and, and for the listener, we my hope is actually as time goes on. Last time Evan and I were we were probably like a few bottles of wine in, and we're like, let's just do a podcast all the time. Yeah. And uh, I was like, why don't you come like try to be like semi regular as it fits in with your crazy life on top of mine. Um, but yeah, I look forward to it because these these are the conversations that have honestly uh, even down to like strategic moves. Like I said, like our conversation spurred. Uh, what's what's going to be happening with our Patreon and what we're going to experiment with and and figure out and even just today like I I realize I'm still just juggling too many things like there's some shit if I just got it done <laughs> you know go figure yeah for mm -hmm. me but that one thing I keep coming back to is this idea of uh, I forget who said this to is we often overestimate what we can get done in a day and underestimate what we can accomplish in a year and that that year thing has been helpful for my anxiety because I was like stressing about the day and all the things that I was juggling. And I, I reflected, I was like, wait, a year ago, this is where you were. A year ago, this is what was happening. A year ago, this is where your finances were. Like, and I'm like, oh, okay. Just focus and get some shit done that you mm -hmm. need to today. And then tomorrow you take the next step, the next iteration. I love it. Well, uh, unfortunately, I got to pop off here soon. I'm sure you got about a million things. I got to go catch an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, last two questions uh, from the podcast itself. So right now in your life, how would you define living a great life? Oh, obviously something that I'm working on too, but um you know, being present, um, minimizing the shit you don't want to do <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and maximizing that, that gives you energy and, and, uh, you know, fills, fills you up. Um, you know, I, I'm somebody that I, I really want to travel more. I want to go wander and explore more. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out like, how does, how does that work? How do I incorporate that with, you know, work and, and family. It's one of the reasons that I've, I've pursued, pursued a, a remote work opportunity even before the pandemic was that, that that I could ultimately do that from wherever I or my family wanted to be. Um, you know, so I, I think it's, it's really trying to be intentional about the time we spend, be present in that time um, and and evaluate why we do things that don't bring us joy don't bring us pleasure and, and try to minimize um uh, those aspects and, and maximize that which which we do enjoy i love it that's awesome and for the last question last the second question last I, people watching the video i had two up for one anyway but uh last question right now how would you define creating great things um i think it starts with identifying problems that need to be solved, right? So, and I think that comes from, can apply to even the, the creative, you know, the world you live in with, with music or, you know, my older daughter's really into drawing and, and, and learning about painting and stuff like that and showing a lot of That's promise in that space. Um, but it, it's, it's about understanding what people need and then how you can create that you know the solution for them that, that gives them the value that they're looking for so 
you know, in music, I know that the run with it is about an, a, a performance. It's an experience that you want to go and, and see. And that's what, you know, from my understanding, from our conversations that you're trying to do, um, you know, and that's, that's an escape that people want. That's, that's a, mm-hmm. something that they want to go like be in the moment of. And, and so you're, you're focused on, on doing that. And I think uh, great art comes from um, whether it's, you know, truly what we define as art or, you know, in my space, the products that solve a problem um, is understanding your market, who, who you're doing this for, and then figuring out what, what really needs to be solved, you know, because people don't buy songs for the sake of just spending money on a song, right? They, right. they, they listen to music for some other benefit. And, yeah. and great art comes from, great music comes from those that can tap into those motivations and then, mm. you know, speak into that with their, their creative endeavor to, to fill that need, that desire. That's awesome, man. I love that. Well, uh, let let folks know if and if you don't want people reaching out to you, let me know too. But <laughs> if you want people reaching yeah. out to you, let let them know how they can connect with you, uh, especially uh, in that celiac uh, world as you're doing that yeah. research. Maybe there's some folks listening. Yeah, I'm on. A, I'm a social media lurker most of the time. Uh, <laughs> predominantly on Instagram is is where I hang out. Uh, e Maxon. Um, is my handle there. And then LinkedIn is the other space. Uh, I think it's in slash Evan Maxim. Um, if, if they send me a, a connect request on LinkedIn, just mention this, this podcast. Cause I get a lot of like salesy type connection requests. Right. And so I'm really trying to <laughs> filter those to people I actually want to connect with. <laughs> right. So anybody that, that has an interest that, that heard on this podcast, just mention, you know, either Miguel or run with it or, or live and create. And that, um, you know, love to connect in either of those spaces. Awesome, man. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks for making the time. Yeah. Thanks, Miguel. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the Live and Create podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe and leave a comment or a review. The Live and Create podcast.